Sometimes we have good Sundays, sometimes we have not so good Sundays. But Lord, I am so grateful that you brought this family here. I know a lot of people are traveling today. Please be with them. Continue to be with them, Lord. And uh, knit us together, Father, as this narrative of Jesus continues on. It's just so fascinating. Lord, may we be not only be touched with, uh, with emotion, but may we be touched in our hearts and learn some things today, God, that may be difficult for us. Um, but may we drink it in because, Lord, everything we learn from you is good. And it's good for us. It's in the holy name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. So real quickly, we're going to uh, just let me read a little bit from last week. And then we have some more interesting things. It's just fascinating. Luke 19, 41 through 44 is where we were last week. And, we're and of course, uh, Jesus is... <clears throat> triumphal entry, so to speak. And he says, As he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. He says, How I wish today that you, of all people, would understand the way to peace. But now it is too late. And peace is hidden from your eyes. And before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close in on you from every side. They will crush you into the ground and your children with you. Your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize it when God visited you. <clears throat> now, we read a little bit last week from Josephus Flavius, uh, a bit of an eyewitness account of when this actually happened beginning in 66 A.D., finally ended completely in 72 A.D., but I have some additional information for you. In 63 A.D., Rome interested Rome inserted itself into the Jewish law and took over the appointments of the high priest. Do you realize how devastating that is? The Romans <clears throat> said, enough. So because the high priests are the people you listen to, we are going to begin to appoint your high priests for you. It wasn't all that different from Herod the Great because... He was kind of a slacky anyway, right? But now they, they, they just make no bones about it. And as a result, the high priest who represented the Jews before God on their most sacred occasions increasingly came from the ranks of Jews who collaborated with Rome. The Jews' anti-Roman feelings were seriously exacerbated during the reign of the half-crazed emperor Caligula. That name sound familiar to you? He was a loony bin. <clears throat> Caligula, in the year 39, declared himself to be a deity and ordered his statue to be set up at every temple in the Roman Empire. The Jews alone uh, in the empire refused, to com uh, refused the command. They would not defile God's temple with the statue of pagan Romans' newest deity. We give uh, Israel a lot of credit for that. It was not an easy decision to make. So we jump ahead a few years, and by AD 60, 66 AD, the rebellion, because they began to rebel against Rome, had failed, <clears throat> which led to a Jewish civil war that lasted for two years. That civil war was brought on because they were being attacked by Rome in Galilee, 
And Jerusalem refused to send help because Jerusalem realized that the cause had pretty much been lost already. So there was this great slaughter in Galilee. And so these people are running for their lives back in to Jerusalem. And now a civil war begins because they receive no help. It lasts for two years. And by A.D. 68, all of the Jewish leaders at that time had been killed. And this was accomplished without one Roman soldier intervening. So, you get the picture here. During the summer of 70 A.D., the Romans breached the walls of Jerusalem and initiated an orgy of violence and destruction. Another way of putting this would be that the Roman soldiers were driven by a lust for blood and slaughter. It was no longer a command they were following. Now it was their passion. Shortly thereafter, they destroyed the second temple. This was the final and most devastating Roman blow against Judea. I have some additional information concerning the destruction of the temple. This is all relevant, just so you know. The rebels, shortly after the attack on Jerusalem, attacked the Romans again. And a clash followed between the guards of the sanctuary and the troops who were putting out the fire inside the inner court, court of Gentiles. The latter routed the Jews and followed in hot pursuit right up to the temple itself. Then one of the soldiers, without awaiting any orders and with no dread of of so momentous a deed, but urged on by some supernatural force snatched a blazing piece of wood and climbed on another soldier's back, hurled the flaming brand through a glow golden window that gave access on the north side to the rooms that surrounded the sanctuary. And as the flame shot up, the Jews let out a shout of dismay that matched the tragedy. They flocked to the rescue with no thought of sparing their lives or husbanding their strength, for the sacred structure that they had constantly guarded with such devotion was vanishing before their eyes. No exhortation or threat could now restrain the impetuosity of the legions, for passion was in supreme command. Crowded together around the entrance, many were trampled down by their companions, Others, stumbling on the smoldering and smoke-filled ruins of the porticos, died as miserably as the defeated. They drew closer to the temple. They pretended not even to hear Caesar's orders, but urged the men in front to throw in more firebrands. The Roman soldiers were now in direct defiance of Caesar. The rebels were powerless to reply or to help. Carnage and flight spread throughout. Most of the slain were peaceful citizens, weak and unarmed, and they were butchered where they were caught. The heap of corpses mounted higher and higher about the altar. A stream of blood flowed down the temple steps, and the bodies of those slain at the top slipped to the bottom. 
When Caesar failed to restrain the fury of his frenzied soldiers and the fire could not be checked, he entered the building with his generals and looked at the holy place of the sanctuary and all its furnishings, which exceeded by far the accounts current in foreign lands and fully justified their splendid repute in our own. As the flames had not yet penetrated to the inner sanctum, but were consuming the chambers that surrounded the sanctuary, Titus assumed correctly that there was still time to save the structure. This is a Roman soldier. He ran out, and by personal appeals, he endeavored to persuade his men to put out the fire, instructing them, instructing a particular centurion of his bodyguard of lancers to club any of the men who disobeyed his orders. But their respect for Caesar and their fear of the centurion's staff who was trying to check them were overpowered by their rage, their detestation of the Jews, and an utterly uncontrolled lust for battle. It is estimated that as many as one million Jews died in the great revolt against Rome. When people today speak of the almost 2,000-year span of Jewish homelessness and exile, they are dating it from the failure of the revolt and the destruction of the temple. Indeed, the great revolt of 66 to 70 followed some 60 years later by another unsuccessful revolt in the year 132 A.D. They were the greatest calamities in Jewish history prior to the Holocaust. In addition to the more than one million Jews killed, these failed rebellions led to the total loss of Jewish political authority in Israel until when? 1948. Are we beginning to understand the significance of the decisions that these Pharisees and high priests were about to act upon as Jesus sat upon the foal of a donkey on the outskirts of Jerusalem and wept. The catastrophic consequences of these decisions would cause death and suffering for centuries. It was not until 1948, 1,878 years later, following World War II and the torture and slaughter of six million Jews, that God would reestablish the Jewish homeland. And it has been only within the past year that Jerusalem has begun to be recognized by a few sovereign nations, the United States, which was the first, as the official capital of Israel. If you're following prophecy, take note. 1,878 years of destruction, slaughter, misery, and being nomads because a few high priests and a few Pharisees and a few Roman officials acted upon their own interest out of fear. On a personal level, do you believe Jesus knows what our future holds for us? Do you believe Jesus offers opportunities to repent of our sins 
Do you believe our disobedience makes a difference in our lives or in the lives of our loved ones? Yes? Yes. The decisions we make today, many of them, perhaps one or two of them, many in the next week or the next few years, will have an impact on our children, our grandchildren, and our great-grandchildren. And sometimes I get this picture when I'm in a particularly rebellious frame of mind of Jesus saying, you don't know what you're doing. You have no idea the significance of this decision you're about to make. Stop. Just stop. Here's the good news. The opposite is true as well. God honors and rewards those who submit to his authority. And precepts. And just as the consequences of our disobedience is handed down through the generations, so are the blessings of our obedience. Today, right now, you can choose to choose the legacy you want to leave to your children and nieces and nephews and grandchildren and neighbors. And here's the really good news. Isaiah 43, 25 says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. I love that. Blots out your transgressions, he says, for my own sake. We benefit. But it's for God's sake that he blots out our transgressions and remembers our sins no more. Hebrews 8.12, For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. Ezekiel 36.25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I think some of us would rather have a heart of stone sometimes. Maybe it's a little less painful right now. So we know this. Our God is a God of new beginnings and first and second and fourth and one hundredth chances. Those of you who have had the privilege of being parents, how many chances will you give your children to come back? And some of us have had to have tough love, right? But you know what I know happens every time when it's sincere and that child comes back? When it's sincere, we always take them back. It's our Heavenly Father. It doesn't mean that he can go back in time and fix our lives. But it does mean that God can make something beautiful from broken dreams and shards of glass. You know, your testimony is always about your obedience. It's not about the sin you committed. We're not proud of the sin we commit. That's not why we give our sinful testimony. We're proud of a God who saves us. He's done this for me. 
How can this begin for you? Well, the Apostle John writes this in 1 John 1, 8 and 9. says this, If we claim we have no sin, we are only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to Him, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. Healing begins with confession and repentance. Over and over and over again. We must be just as faithful with our confession and repentance as we are in our sins. Did you hear that correctly? We're really faithful in our sins, are we not? We fall right into them. We're faithful. We indulge. We practice them. We enjoy them. Are we just as faithful with our repentance and our confessions? So Jesus now continues his journey into Jerusalem. He's sitting on the outskirts on the foal of a donkey. And I wrote a ton of scriptures on your scripture sheet today because there's so many scriptures and I think they're in chronological order so you can follow along with this. Matthew 21, 10, 11 says this, And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Remember, The Passover celebration is gearing up thousands and thousands and thousands of people in the temple. I know that doesn't sound possible, but you'll see later that it is. And there's there's energy and there's an anticipation. We talked about this last week. The old city of Jerusalem is surrounded by a wall containing eight major gates. Moving counterclockwise from the northernmost gate at Herod's Gate is the Damascus Gate, the New Gate, Jaffa Gate, Zion Gate, the Dung Gate, the Eastern Gate, and the Lion's Gate. The Eastern Gate facing the Mount of Olives, which is where Jesus would be descending to across the Kidron Valley, is unique in that it is currently completely sealed shut. In Hebrew, it is called the Gate of Mercy. Does that make sense? Jesus is going to pass through the gate of mercy. It's currently the oldest gate in the old city, having been constructed in the 6th or 7th century A.D. When Jesus entered Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives in Matthew 21, he used a gate in the same location as this one. The eastern gate was sealed shut in A.D. 1540. Why? Because a, a Muslim sultan wanted to prevent Jesus from ever coming through that gate in the future. Twelve feet of concrete. He doesn't know our God. Do you believe our enemy is desperate? Do you believe our enemy is determined? He is determined. Do you believe our enemy is already defeated? Say yes, because he is. We're just walking through the battle now. John 12, 17 through 19, says, The crowd that had been with him, meaning Jesus, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So why were they excited? Two reasons. Jesus might be there and Lazarus might be with him. Pharisees are befuddled as to what... By the way, they spent a lot of time in befuddleism. Jesus has them befuddled all the time. They're flummoxed. I like those two words. I don't know why. Flummoxed and befuddled. 
Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, because now all this energy is coming up, the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing? Look, the world has gone after him. So the, the implication here is that they had decided to do a couple of things, and they had decided on this least violent one, at least for right now. And this one Pharisee says, you see? We're gaining nothing. The world has gone after him. Jesus passes through the mercy gate of Jerusalem and then continues into the temple area. Mark 11, 11 says this, And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. Jesus arrives in humble fashion, riding on the foal of a donkey. There's a loud singing and waving of palm branches and great excitement. They believe he is there to set up his earthly kingdom. He rides into the city and then directly into the temple courtyard of the Gentiles. And when he finally got there, this is what it says. And when he looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Now, this is not what everyone expected. You're following this man on the foal of a donkey, who you believe is the king of Israel, who's going to bring victory and free them from Rome. And he rides into Jerusalem, into the court of the Gentiles, and he gets off of the foal and he looks around. At everything. Most of us might picture Jesus entering a fairly large area and standing in one place and looking at all four corners of the courtyard of the Gentiles and taking inventory. We might picture him spending a few minutes and slowly turning in a 360 degree circle, taking it in, looking at the entire court. Not so fast. So I was sharing some of this this week, so I'm going to ask a question. You guys just be quiet with the answer, okay? We all know you're brilliant. How large do you think the court of Gentiles was? I'll give you a clue. There's two numbers I'll give you, three and five. So think about this. How large was the court of the Gentiles? Now, the court of the Gentiles consumed the entire inner part of the temple. The Holy of Holies, the holy place, the actual temple was in there, uh, court of the ladies, court of the men, and that kind of thing. But I I had not researched this, and I came to find out that the court of the Gentile was 35 acres. <laughs> 35 acres. That's 25 and a half football fields. And he walks into this courtyard of the Gentiles and the throng is behind him. There's another throng welcoming him. So we know there's room for these people. And he goes into the courtyard. He slides off the full. And this is what it says. He looked around at everything. How long does it take to look at everything in 35 acres? Everything. And what was his reaction? He turned and left. Within that 35 acres was the women's court, which is about 200 square feet. The men's court, which was smaller. And then the priestly court, smaller still. And finally, the temple itself. 
Jesus was not there for a coronation. I believe Jesus was there on a reconnaissance mission. That's what I believe. He knew what was there. And he goes in and he looks at everything. I think he was gathering information. For what was he gathering information? Because he knew he was going to clear that courtyard the next day. How would you go about clearing 35 acres of greedy men and women along with their trinkets and idols and sacrificial animals that stunk? You you can love animals all you want, but they do stink. 35 acres of animals. Now, maybe not wall-to-wall, right? Jesus surveys the courtyard, and the Scripture says, and when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So here's a quick review. Jesus travels along with a, a lot of people and his disciples from the... Galilean area, down to Jericho, healing two blind men and saving Zacchaeus, traveling to Bethany, anointed with oil. He was anointed with oil in Bethany. Travels to Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. Enters through the mercy gate. Enters the courtyard of the Gentiles. He looked around at everything. He returns with his disciples to Bethany. And this is where we pick up the story. Matthew 21, beginning with verse 18. In the morning, as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. I see he's already been to Bethany. He's had some time with Lazarus again and his two sisters and probably their father. And now he's going back into Jerusalem. In the morning as he was returning to the city, he became hungry. And seeing a fig tree by the wayside, he went to it and found nothing on it but only leaves. And he said to it, May no fruit ever come from you again. And the fig tree withered at once. Once the disciples saw it, They marveled, saying, How did the fig tree wither at once? And Jesus answered them, always teaching, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and thrown into the sea, it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive, if you have faith. Okay, so if I'm one of the disciples, and I'm probably named well, Thomas, if I'm one of the, the apostles and I observe this miracle and I've not yet begun to connect all of the dots as to what's going to happen when we finally get back into Jerusalem, I would be thinking, that was a bit harsh. Why'd you kill the fig tree? And Jesus said, well, this is why. And I'm sure Thomas, whoever, I don't want to blame Thomas, but whoever said that, I'm sure they're going, another parable? Can't you just talk to us? I mean, after all, Jesus, we've experienced thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people offering you praise and waving palm branches and singing from the Psalms. We have been with these wonderful friends. We've been feasting and Passover's on the horizon. It doesn't get much better than this. And you kill a fig tree. And once again, we are reminded that Christ's sights are set on the cross, not Passover, not Jerusalem. It is Passover because he's going to be the Lamb. So what was Jesus trying to say through this miracle? Well, historically, fig trees are mentioned a lot in the Bible. 
It was extremely important both for nutritional and economic reasons. When things were well in Israel and the people were prosperous, the Bible describes every man sitting under his own fig tree, 1 Kings. The prophets, on the other hand, when predicting judgment on Israel, speak of the tree having been destroyed. Jesus is saying, this is not going to go well when you guys look at this. Because you are about to go into 1,878 years of desolation. Also, we can find an answer in another scripture that might appear to be un- unrelated at first. When you read them side by side, they mean everything. John 15, verse 4 says, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine, neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, it, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. In that one act of the fig tree, Jesus is saying all of these things. Verse 6, If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, uh, are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. And if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Jesus is speaking of those who have begun to follow him, but do not know him. He's speaking to the people who attend churches every Sunday morning throughout the United States and maybe other places in the world that know all about him, but they do not know him. He's saying, this is really crucial. You can benefit from the Holy Spirit and not even have the Holy Spirit within you because those around you have the Holy Spirit within them. And these are blessings that are just spilling out. And you're being showered by these blessings. He said, but trust me, there's going to come a time when you're not going to be showered by blessings because you won't be around anyone who has the Holy Spirit within them. They look like they know Him. They act as if they know Him. They speak of Him as if they are one with Him. But they are lost. Some of them are the deceived and some of them are the deceivers. The bottom line is they are not abiding in him. Therefore, they will be cut off and thrown into the fires. Lost forever. I want to make a distinction here. Because some people would read this scripture and say, See, if you're not living the life that a Christian should live after you have received Jesus Christ, then you are some of the people that are going to be cast out, uh, cursed. That's not what this is saying. What this is saying is, if you have yet to receive Jesus, but you're really religious... You're already cut out. Salvation is forever. I know that's a real big point and it's a real big discussion thing. We don't have, you know, every Sunday, we we don't have time to go into this every Sunday. Uh, You should be reading that on your own anyway. You shouldn't be depending on me. I firmly believe salvation is forever. There was definitely a change in Jesus' demeanor, though, don't you think? It was less than 24 hours from the time Jesus sat upon the foal of a donkey and wept for Jerusalem and was ushered into the city. And I'm absolutely certain that much of Jesus' time at Bethany that night was spent in prayer because he knew what the next day brought. 
This is where he found strength and resolve to carry out his mission. It's a good question for us too, is it not? When was the last time you stole away to have intimate time with your Heavenly Father? You know, God loves all prayer. If, if it's sincere, He loves it. But you know, no father, grandfather, great-grandfather, uncle, aunt, whoever. No one would be satisfied if the only time your kids came to you says, Can I have? Can I have? Now, see, I'm, I'm not God in that manner. I go, what have you done to deserve it? And by the way, that's not all bad in between my kids and me and my grandchildren and me. I mean, that's accountability. We need to steal away. It's hard to do that. Do you know the trials that are in store for you this afternoon, tomorrow, or next week? If you haven't prayed about those today, are you going to be prepared? Anybody, you know, today you need to be praying, not only about today, but tomorrow. God has things in store for you. So does your enemy, by the way. He has things in store for you. And if I'm prayed, I'm going to use the term, if I'm prayed up over in this, then when those things attack me, there's much less chance that I'm going to fall prey to the cravings of the flesh. It just makes sense. The best way for you to be prepared for the unknown events of today is to have bathed them in prayer yesterday. Now we see Jesus as more of a soldier. He's not the meek, humble king that's been ushered in to the courtyard. He's seen... It's, it, he's seen a devastating sight, and he's gone to Bethany, and he's spent time with his friends, with his apostles, and I believe in, alone in time uh, in prayer with his heavenly Father. And this is a Jesus that's more of a soldier, and he has received his marching orders. Luke 19.45 says this, And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold. Thirty-five acres. Driving out those who sold. Matthew records it this way, Matthew 21 tells, And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. Mark eleven sixteen, And he would not allow anyone to carry anything from the temple. He not only kicked them out, he said, drop the junk. It's quite a picture. I think if there's one thing I believe we could agree upon at this point is that Jesus was exercising great authority. He cleared 35 acres of thieves, heretics, hypocrites, and banned anyone and everyone from even carrying anything on the temple grounds. In other words, he turned over their tables, and when they tried to grab some of their idols before they ran out, Jesus said, don't even think about that. And I have a... I think they went, yes, sir. When Jesus saves us, He saves us from all sin. We become the temple of God. You know that. We are born again in His image. We start over, clean and pure. This is done at a great price. This is done at the cost of Christ's life and suffering because of our sins. And yet many of us try to take a little something with us, right? A little trophy from our past. We want to hang on to just a little taste of sin because our flesh still longs for sin. Our flesh does not long 
for what God offers. Your flesh is your enemy. Even if you're saved, I might even say, especially if you're saved, your flesh is your enemy. Whenever your flesh cries out, just say no to that. What is that thing you feel you just can't live without? What has Jesus failed to give you through salvation that leaves this craving in you unfulfilled? The answer is that when Jesus saved you, He saved you completely. Your enemy, who is the great deceiver, deceives you into believing that your pet sin is still needed to fulfill some hidden desire. See, see, Jesus, you don't understand the sin I have because it's, it's revolting. It's revolting. And, and if I were to say that you have fulfilled that desire then I would be saying that you have to sin. There are certain sins in our culture that are far more acceptable than others. And it's really too bad in a way because it keeps some people from confessing them out loud. God says every sin. Every sin. Confess your pet sin to Jesus right now. He already knows what it is and He knows it is stealing your joy. The sins we refuse to release so that we might find fulfillment in our flesh are the very things that prevent us from finding fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Luke 19.46 Saying to them, it is written, he's in, he's in the temple, he's been confronted, said, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. He clears the 35, 35 acres and he's, now he's teaching daily in the temple. This is quite the scene. As a matter of fact, what Jesus did, if not for being God himself, was scandalous. It was outrageous. It was foolishness. It warranted a swift and equally strong response from the authorities. So my question is, who responded to this and how did they respond? There were two groups of people there that day that did indeed respond. Group number one. Matthew twenty one fourteen says, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. Folks, it's always, be, it's always going to be the bent nails who pursue Jesus. Because otherwise we have no hope. It's always going to be the people that society would rather not have to deal with. And unfortunately, sometimes our churches... Give society the same rebuke. We begin to look at giving units. How many giving units do we have? We don't do that here as far as I know. We did it at my other churches, our other churches where we were involved. How many giving units do we have and what's the average? A couple times I've asked Gordon that because I wanted to know how many people were actually giving. But I don't know names and I don't know amounts. Sometimes our society, we, we, we adopt the we adopt what society does. It's a great lesson in Sunday school this morning. I wish, all, I wish all of you were there. You would like it more than you think. Two groups of people. Matthew twenty one fourteen, the blind and the lame came to him into the temple and he healed them. They weren't afraid of the Pharisees. 
They knew they needed Jesus. Luke 19, 48, for all the people were hanging on His words. Pharisees are nervous. Matthew 21, 15, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the Son of David. Mark eleven eighteen. all the crowd was astonished at His teaching. That's one group. Group number two, Luke 19, 47, says this, the chief priests... And the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Matthew twenty-one fifteen. But when the chief, chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, they bowed down and received him. No, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, Now here's where he's talking about praises. He says, Yes, have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany again and lodged there. Mark eleven eighteen. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him. Why did they fear him? Because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And when evening came, they, meaning Jesus and the apostles, went out of the city. They were returning to Bethany. I bet it was a sleepless night, big church meeting all night All night that night. We need to get the deacons and the elders. We need to get everybody together. Again. We have to decide what in the world are we going to do with this guy? He's disrespectful to us. He's uncontrollable. And you see, he has the people hanging on every word and they're following him everywhere. We have an issue, guys. We have to confront this. And they do. And that's next week. Lord, we love you. What courage your son shows. And it's inconceivable to me that as Jesus was doing these things, He knew my name. So, Father, may, may we never take lightly what these verses are telling us. May we bow down And may we sing holy, holy, holy.